What's happening, everybody, and welcome back to the Funky Brain Podcast. My name is Dennis. Um, our guest today, he's a, he's a funny fellow. Uh, he's a former advertising copywriter and author of a book called All Drinking Aside, which he describes as everybody's autobiography. I love that. Um, and I love the title, too. But he's appeared in a number of TV, radio shows, as well as magazines, talking about his book. And he's joining us from Atlantic City, New Jersey. Mr. Jim Anders, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing just fine, uh, Dennis. I'm, I'm so glad that you invited me to uh, be on your podcast. And uh, it's, it's really been a while since I've, I've had an interview, so it, it's good. Plus, because of this whole COVID-19 thing, this is like really the closest thing to a, a meeting that, that I've had. I, I belong to several groups on uh, Facebook, so I, I, I'm involved in my recovery, of course, every day. But uh, so this is good for me. Yeah, I, I want to th thank you before on from the get go. Yeah, sure. No problem, man. We're going to have a great talk. So uh, you led with the COVID thing. I was going to ask you. So how is all that treating you? How's 2020 going for you? And so uh, far, so far it's going fairly well. I had retired a few years ago. I took an early retirement because there was a period of about six months where from my AA, NA, Al-Anon, all my recovery groups, everything, all these people started dying. Either people that I knew directly or sons or daughters, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, this, that, or the other. And it was morally crushing me. And I thought, what? I'm going to continue this uh, low-paying job until, the, until I drop over. So I decided to take an early retirement. Then after about a year, my social security wasn't enough to really support me properly. So I was working part time uh, at, at a place. And then on March 12th was my last day. I just decided from everything I saw on the news, this is it. I, I've had um, pneumonia. I've had cancer. Uh, I would have multiple hospitalizations from my alcoholism and uh, drug dependency. So I'm uh, and my age, so I'm very vulnerable. So I just decided to just give it a break. So I'm awesome. kind of waiting for this whole thing to, to end. But that's okay sometimes. I think it's going to be different. It's, we have to embrace it as a challenge. I think we can't get stuck in it because it'll keep us where we are. You're in recovery also, right? Or, or did yeah, I... so I've been sober since April of 2003, April 8th, 2003. Oh, yeah. So I, I remember now. You're just a little bit ahead of me. I have 16 years of continuous sobriety preceded by eight years of in and out of the rooms, relapse, all, all of that. And uh, this last 16 years, after, after the first three years of that, that's when I was well enough to start writing my book. And I, I guess I want to get uh, into the origin of that for just a moment. I drank, I guess, a little bit when I was an early teenager, but I never, I got drunk the first time. That's how, like, I, I would start my drinking history with the first time I got plastered. And, and that was, that was when I was 16. And uh, by the time I was 20, I, I went to college. I have a degree in English. I went to uh, Moravian College in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. That's kind of interesting to note there. Because the, the first year I was in college, I commuted to college from a, a town nearby. Uh, the second year, I lived in the dormitory. 
Uh, the third year, I lived in an apartment by myself. And, and my senior year, I lived in a house with five other people, one woman and, and uh, three, other, three, three other guys. So you would think having that living uh, arrangement so varied while I was at college that I would be, be fully a, an adult by the time I graduated from college. And it really just didn't turn out that way. I, I was fortunate that, that I was such a, a, a good student that it started out that I would just like drink on weekends and then it would be like Thursday nights. The week, let's start the weekend on Thursday and then let's have it go until Monday. And, but by the time I graduated from uh, college and, and was done with that experience, I was pretty much drinking uh, every day. From the point I'm 21 on, I virtually drank every day, interrupted by uh, hospitalizations and stuff. You know, <laughs> I, I've been to a couple detoxes and uh, rehabs before I really got sober the first uh, the first time. Well, you know, what's really funny is when you said that, you know, I started the weekend early on Thursdays. We used to joke. It was like, well, there's Thirsty Thursday and then Friday and Saturday are self-explanatory. Sunday, yes. Sunday was football. Monday was Monday night football. And Tuesday, uh -huh. we drank on Tuesday because there was only 52 in a year. So uh, we, Taco Taco Tuesday or whatever, right? Taco Tuesday, yeah. I mean, like, so we always had a reason. Basically, we drank because I didn't want to feel. I wasn't good at feeling, you know, uh -huh. happy, mad, glad, or sad. I just drank because I just didn't want to feel like regular life. It was a little too much for me. So do, do you have that similar experience? Uh, yeah, for, for me, what, what, what I remember best about uh, drinking every day as I did was the up and down of it. The first few drinks would, would elevate me and after that it was a slow descent. And I, I was a blackout drinker the, by the, by the middle, middle of my 30 years, I blacked out occasionally. And by the last 10 years of my drinking, I blacked out almost uh, every day. What's interesting that most people don't understand, like I'm right here right now, fully conscious talking to you. And if you saw me tomorrow and uh, you mentioned something, I, I might not even, if, if I were still drinking and still blacking out, I might not remember this conversation we're having right now uh, because uh, what a blackout actually is, why people that don't have never blacked out don't understand is the alcohol makes it impossible for you to form memories. There is no memory to retrieve because that part of the brain has been broken. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's funny I use the word broken because I'm working on a second book and the title of that tentatively is called Becoming Unbroken. I love it. You know, you mentioned that you like the title All Drinking Aside. Uh, I had considered various other titles as, as I was going along. One of them was Moonshine to Sunshine, which I really liked, but it really didn't fit with the, the tragic comedy that, that uh, my life is. And it, it wasn't, it has too much of uh, revenuers and Southern images to it with a moonshine, with a still and all that. But I, I did like the title. Uh, I was really happy with the, the title I chose. And I can tell you something that you will hardly believe. The subtitle my, to my book is the, the Destruction, Deconstruction, and Reconstruction of an Alcoholic Animal. 
alcohol, once I was swallowed up by it, I became like an animal. All I sought was another drink. And it wasn't until, I, I love the title, uh, the subtitle, and uh, with I had uh, three different people helping me edit it at that time. It took like a year to really get it together. And uh, I had shared that subtitle with someone and it was my, in fact, my sister uh, who lives in Missouri said, oh, uh, Oprah will like that subtitle. So I thought that, I thought that was hysterical. So I decided to stick with that as the, as this, as the subtitle. And uh, as we mentioned briefly before we started uh, talking live here, uh, I had seen your, your wonderful uh, podcast with the, the doctor, I forget his last name, from Seabrook. And you, yeah, yeah, that was it. And, and uh, you had mentioned that in AA, they say to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. So when I was conceiving uh, this book, uh, one of the things I had in mind was remembering how in my early sobriety, I had no attention span. I, if you said read a book, I could have said, no way. There's no way I can read a whole book. So I decided, oh, 90 meetings in 90 days. I'm going to do 90 chapters so that it's like bite-sized portions for people in early recovery so that uh, they have some kind of sense that they can do it. Whenever we do something new, it's hard. It's challenging. It's difficult. Uh -huh. It's confusing. It's overwhelming. And so in the case of people like us who drank too much, so we stop because that's hard. I don't want to, I don't want to do that stuff. It's overwhelming. So I'm going to stop doing that. And uh, so the 90 and 90, uh, I think is a, it's an important tool to get used to a new way of living. Yes, that, that is one thing that AA got many, many things right. And, and that is one that, as you, I think you mentioned in your discussion with that doctor from Seabrook, was that it turns out that scientific evidence later followed what AA had more or less blindly said 90 and 90. And, and there was another thing that because uh, your conversation with that doctor reminded me, of another key element of, uh, of my story. It's an autobiographical fiction. Well, how can that be? Here's how. Uh, I was thinking in AA, one thing that used to un really annoy me was you always heard no cross-talking. And, and for uh, viewers that don't know what that is, when there's a, 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 any kind of recovery meeting, you, when someone's speaking, you don't interrupt them. It's rude, it's impolite, but often, people will talk on the kind of on the side. And that's kind of where the aside is in all drinking aside, because like on stage, when, when someone uh, speaks directly to the audience, you know, when you're sitting in the audience, you know that that actor, you know that the other actors on the stage hear every word that that actor is directing at you, but you suspend your disbelief long enough to, to take it all in. So that's where that's really where the aside came from, because the, the concept was that I thought if it, I didn't want my books to be one huge war story. That's why I divided it into 90 chapters like, was a good way to break it up. And then I, I came up with the idea. Let me have fictional characters in the book. So as I tell my story, three fictional characters in the background, unnoticed by me discuss amongst themselves in each and every chapter on each and every page what they think my prospects for recovery are. And that's kind of how the whole book goes, just like that. 
Yeah, I love that. Well, the one thing I really love is the term that you used was a, what was it? It's a uh, tragic comedy. Oh yeah, I, tr I try to keep a, a sense of humor. And my, my thing yesterday was how uh, humor and optimism is what I was get driving at. Optimism was a negative for me in my addiction because my optimism kept me thinking that I could learn to control it. I used other, I knew I was an alcoholic by the time I was like 25 for sure. And I, I felt like I, I, some kind of sense of control over my alcoholism by using other drugs to heighten the experience, to prolong the experience or to curtail the experience. And it was just, uh, it didn't work. It didn't go well for me as, as you undoubtedly know by now. But, but the optimism in recovery works wonderfully. But when you, when you try to be optimistic for something that has a no positive end to it, it, it worked against me. If I were less of an optimistic person, maybe I would have gotten sober sooner than I had. There, there's no telling. You know, but you brought up some funny, a uh, couple of quotes that you had, and I, I accepted being powerless over alcohol when I was drunk because being drunk killed the pain of being powerless. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a powerful statement because I am powerless. I don't go to AA as much as I used to. In my case, it was like there were other things I wanted to learn and grow and do into. So I took some of that path, but I still pop into meetings. I think there's a lot of value there. I have clients that I send there. The best thing in my opinion about, well, it's a very profound, awesome program. The, the most powerful part of it, in my opinion, is the fellowship, for sure. Oh, absolutely. It's like, I, I, I kind of loved the people in AA. They saved my life. There, I have no doubt about that because I had no money. I had no resources. I had nothing. I was an empty shell. I was a mess. Uh, at the beginning of the meetings I went to, they, they always started out, did, any, did anyone have the thought of a drift attack? And for the first, like, year and a half I was raising my hand every day they, people are like not again you're still you still haven't thought of a drink and it, that's just uh, kind of the way it was you know but it's a great place to go to meet like-minded people to sit around a table and say you know this is what's going on in my head well one I can't stop drinking it's ruining my life and I need help mm -hmm. so I mean like these are this, it's a great place to go and get that stuff out there there's a lot more additional growth outside of AA for sure. But I love uh, the program. I have lifelong friends and family from AA. And uh, so I don't hate it. I just think there's more growing to do. I'm so glad you used that word growing because what happened to me is after about 13 years of sobriety, I slacked off on my meetings a little bit. I, I, by that time, I was involved online. I was working on my book. I was I, I read lots of uh, books about recovery, fiction and nonfiction. Mine is both. After my book was published, uh, I became friends with uh, someone who bought my book and is, was uh, we became friends. And she's active in Al-Anon and she took me to an Al-Anon meeting. And that opened up a whole new world of uh, perspective on my own uh, substance use disorder. So it was really good for me to to do that. To me, any any different way you can involve your your senses, whether it's to 
read, read sober, dance sober, cook sober, do, do everything sober. Eventually, like they, I was about to say, like they say in AA, there's so many great sayings. What do I have to change? Everything, you know? You only have to change one thing, right? That's so funny. Yeah. Uh, uh, speaking of perspective, uh, I, I really want to make a point of uh, a big eye-opening thing to me in the last few years was in Atlantic County, the drug court, they changed the name of it from drug court to recovery court. And that simple change in perspective has changed lives and saved lives. Because if you go to apply for a job and you put drug court, oh, I don't know about this guy, but if you put recovery court, it puts a whole new spin on it. And it made me realize that the stigma uh, that is surrounds addiction and alcoholism are not only the use, it's also in recovery. Because if there was no stigma against people in recovery, they would say, hi, my name is Jim and I I'm in recovery. But the stigma is there even for me. I I'm good with it, you know. But many people have dozens of, of years sober and yet still are anonymous. Yeah. It, to me, I can understand historically the why AA did that was different times that they lived in then. The, the whole culture was different than it yeah. is now. But uh, th there are so many different ways that that you, you know, it's, it's all words. Words have a, a profound effect on your life. Uh, I really want to share with you uh, something that I wish I had heard when I first got sober because I couldn't, I, I just couldn't stay sober. I was, I was, I called myself eventually the relapse king because I would get some time and I would relapse and I, I, I couldn't handle it. And then, then finally, uh, after I was three years sober, I, I quit smoking. And that little pamphlet that comes in with the patches that, you know, the little uh, brochure that comes inside the package, uh, it, it said this one simple thing. It says, do not think of yourself as a smoker who's trying to quit. Think of yourself as a former smoker. And it was so simple, so easy, so obvious. And yet it had never occurred to me to look at it that way. And uh, I, with the, the not smoking, I did the patch and it's a three-step thing. And by the time I was in the middle of the second patch, I was like, I'm a former smoker. I don't need this. And uh, I, I saved myself some bucks and I, I, was, I was done smoking at, at that point. I quit smoking about, um, I think it was 10 months after I stopped drinking. You know what I have with cinnamon sticks. I know so what they look like. Cinnamon sticks are the same size as a cigarette. They yes, yes, they are. Put toke on them. You can chew on them. And I had, uh -huh. them in the, had them in the bathroom, in the car, in the living uh -huh. room, next to the bed. I had them all over the place. And then a few months later, I got rid of the cinnamon sticks. And I uh -huh. Well, one of the greatest things I, I've learned, like I've been a sponsor to people in, in AA and NA. And uh, I've had people die on me and everything. I've, I've been through a lot. It's incredible. I'm sure you've had, you have too, but uh, I learned that to help someone else 
you can't start telling them what to do. You have to meet them where they are. And that is where the road to recovery starts. You can't be distanced from the person. You have to be with them and guide them and show them and let them take the steps, you know? It's, it's almost like parenting in, in a way. You can, your enabling can, can actually prevent people from growing. You can help someone, but you can enable someone to death, you know? Yeah, that's a really great topic. And now, I, so I'm a coach for addiction recovery. So I coach, I have a lot of clients. What I do and my approach, and I, I think a lot, some coaches do this, but I'm, I'm not the answer coach. I don't say, you know, go do this. I'm the question coach. So when I, I'm, I'm constantly asking questions and the idea is to get people to understand things for themselves. It's uh-huh. to get them to understand where they are and where, what the next step should be. I'm constantly giving them homework. So they're uh-huh. constantly trying to understand, you know, where they are and where they want to go and how do I get there? If I just yeah. sit here and say, do this, do this and do this, they rarely, well, a couple of things happen. One, they become dependent on me giving them answers. And two, if they fail, they blame me because I gave them advice and they say, oh, I worked with Dennis and that doesn't work. But so I constantly, I'm asking questions to get them to have lights go off so they understand the path. So it makes sense to them. It's like, I can lead you to water, but I can't make you drink it. Yes. Uh, There's a a t-shirt in in Atlantic City that that says uh, all an alcoholic needs is a roof over his head, food on the table, and someone to blame. Yeah. And, and, I never heard that before. I love it. You never heard that one. No. Oh, it's, it, it really is true, you know? Yeah, accepting responsibility for where you are is a huge piece of the puzzle. And, yes. and a lot of that's the ego and humility, dropping the ego. Yes. And uh, that, what are the precious quality, humility that uh, few have on a really deep level. Uh, if you've invested 30 years in an in a alcohol and drug using lifestyle, you have an investment in that and you don't want to feel like a failure. You want to, you want to make it work. I mean, I, I tried every way possible to make my drinking and drugging be successful. Yeah. I, I was in the, in the beginning years, like when I first came to Atlantic city, I kind of had instant success. It was just kind of fell on me. Uh, Cause I, you know, my degrees in English, but I, I'm, I was a, Back home before I moved here, I was a waiter and a bartender. And, and when, I, when I came to Atlantic City, uh, I had been uh, working with a friend of mine who lived in, in uh, Manhattan and worked for the attorney for the village people. This is way, way back. And uh, I had had the idea for a children's book. And uh, my friend Alex, uh, he, he got me working hard on this book. Because through his attorney, he had some connections with uh, publishing uh, companies in New York. So at, at one point I had uh, gotten in touch with the Atlantic City Press and they wrote an article uh, about me needing, needing an illustrator uh, for this book. This is how I met my advertising partner. I was in advertising for well over a dozen years. And uh, she she was the graphic designer and I was the copywriter. Together we was a, we were a team, you know, and that's kind of how that how that went. But I, I was an early success uh, in, in Atlantic City, and I thought I, 
I could be a, a high performing alcoholic. And I was, but, but what I never looked at or realized was what degree of malfunctioning was I, you know, how much, did, how much was it preventing me? Uh, there's that, there's a kind of a, a common American, I guess, worldwide myth that getting high will turn creative genius into something above and beyond. And it's simply not true. I, I fell for that hook, line and sinker. Uh, uh, there's a, a, a book I had read by, by, I can't think of his, Victor Frankl. He describes when he was in the concentration camp that he saw children's artwork even in the concentration camp, they did artworks. There's a line in, in my book that more or less says, says that uh, I, I was able to create what, what I created, advertising, radio, TV, print, everything. I gave credit to that I thought I couldn't do it without the alcohol. But in reality, I was doing it despite, despite the alcohol. But I fell for the myth. I thought that I could not be creative, that alcohol and drugs fed my creativity. And well, trust me, I was sober when I wrote my book. <laughs> you know, I'm an old ski guy. I used to ski a lot. I lived up in Vermont for a long time and I was, oh, did I was a little ski racer, ski bum guy. But the, um, I used to say all the time, because I was stoned pretty much for 15 years straight. I used to say, you know, oh, when I was stoned, I ski much better when I'm stoned. And that's just a bunch of bullshit. And a lot yeah, of people yeah. tell themselves that too. Or I drive yeah, better yeah. when I'm stoned. Or it's all just a bunch of stories we tell ourselves. I call them bullshit stories that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better about, you know, the self-destruction life that we're living. Oh, yeah. There, there's destruction in my title. You know, there you go. The destruction, deconstruction, that's taking it apart, and reconstruction of an alcoholic animal. Uh, that's what I was starting to say, and I didn't finish, uh, about the subtitle of my book back, back when I mentioned Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, I did not realize until after my book was out for a year that those three words have the word structure in them. The, the destruction is Structure is destroyed. The deconstruction, you're taking the structure apart. Reconstruction, you're putting the structure back together, creating a new life. It was like over my own head that, <laughs> that, that my recovery has been about restructure, st structuring a sober life. And, and uh, you know, I have a whole new life now. It's, it's, yeah. Well, you know, to piggyback on that, there was another quote that you had, and this one I really connected with a lot. And this was the one, um, well, the sins of omission, you know, were so oh. easy to ignore because they were things that could not happen because I was in deep, deep in my addiction. I missed out on much. My life had become an omission of living. And I can really relate to that. And the reason is, is because in the book, they talk about the, the stupid, boring and glum. If I quit drinking, oh, yeah. am, I, am I to be confined to a life that's stupid, boring, and glum like some other people I see? Mm -hmm. And in my case, like when I started drinking, like there was a lot of fun times too. I met a lot of incredible people. I've traveled all over the place. I've uh, done some really cool stuff. Uh -huh. And at the end of my drinking, I would get into my apartment with four bottles of red wine and a pint of Jack Daniels my cigarettes, my weed, I would line up the remote controls, the phones, and I would make uh -huh. sure the blinds were drawn so nobody could see inside. And I would just sit there and just waste my life away. And I'm like, 
what's more stupid, boring, and glum than that? Like uh-huh. I was hiding from life while I was drinking. So when people are like, you know, you must avoid going to all these places. I don't avoid going anywhere. The idea of being sober is that so I can go anywhere on earth that I want and do anything that any normal people do. And I don't hide from life anymore at all, but I hid when I was drinking. So I would love to hear you talk about that, that omission. Uh, In meetings, you hear all these horror stories of what people did. I did this bad thing. I did that bad thing. I did the other bad thing. And I was like, gee, I guess I wasn't that bad. And then, you know, you had an epiphany. Oh, I I was robbed of everything. Because of alcohol, I omitted, I had no sins. My sins were from not doing things, not staying in touch with my family, not having, staying in contact with people I went to college with, things that I didn't do. And and, and they're they're harder to uh, become uh, aware of than if you get arrested and thrown in jail and all these tragic things that are, are uh, maybe glamorous or exciting or, or newsworthy. Well, for me, it was just what I missed out on. To put a finer point on that uh, is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the first couple of drinks elevate you and then after that it depresses you. Well, not only does it, like if, when I was really mad and I would drink at someone, like if you, I would become angry, I would get drunker that night. But, but what I realized in my recovery is, is that when you deaded one emotion with alcohol, you're deadening every emotion equally. You're omitting emotion from your entire life in order to treat a narrow band of emotions that at that particular moment you you want to suppress with alcohol. A common misconception is like, oh, I'm just going to stop drinking and life opens up and I make lots of money and everything's perfect. But that's not the truth. And so even in long-term sobriety, you know, life continues to come at you. So what are some challenges that you face in sobriety? Because I, you know, one of the, like our listeners here, you know, a lot of them are struggling themselves, whether it's how do I get sober or how do I stay sober? How do I become emotionally sober? How do I become happy? So I like to, I like for my listeners to hear, you know, even people with long-term sobriety, how do we still continue to go? How do we get through when life comes at you, whether it's like, financial problems, relationship problems, who the mm-hmm. president is or isn't. And like all these things that don't matter, like that doesn't matter, even though right. marketing tells you that it does. When I first got sober, I really, I mean, this last time, this last 16 years, uh, I, I had a sponsor who ended up uh, dying from Alzheimer's disease, but, but uh, he had over 60 years of continuous sobriety when he when he left the earth and uh, he was so good. And, and at the beginning, I used to say to him things like, well, why can't I just stop drinking? Why do I have to replace it with anything? Can't I just stop drinking and, you know, everything will be comfy cozy, you know, but it, you really have to replace uh, bad habits uh, with good ones. And learning to be responsible. I'm, I don't have enough money now to really say I'm not responsible with money. I'm certainly better than I used to, to be. But learning to be responsible was so key for me because uh, when I graduated from college, I had a degree. I was 
near the top of my class, but I had no professional goals. All I wanted was money to go out and party that night. That from the from the get go, uh, that's where I was. When you get sober, you have to cultivate a, a new life for yourself. And t- to me, uh, is good habits. I mean, I, it may sound silly to you, but I, I make a habit of making my bed. What, when I get up in the morning, I make my bed first thing because I, I feel like I'm starting the, the day right. You know, like one day at a time. Let's start out the day right. You know, so I agree with you. The healthy morning rituals or we, we can wake up in the morning, grab our phones and start surfing around and getting upset about stupid things that really aren't as important as people portray them to be. And then if I start getting right off the bat, as soon as I have my eyes, angry, resentful, fearful, whatever, insecure, then as soon as I hop out of bed, that's the way the whole day goes. But if I wake up in the morning and make my bed, and then I can Uh sit down and sit in some silence or listen to something productive, read something productive, write a few things down about how I'm feeling, slow my mind down, that's the way my day goes. I have a choice. My day can go like this or like that. When I first got sober this last time, I didn't decide to write a book and then just sit down and write it. I journaled for like three years. And then suddenly I was like, oh, holy moly, I got the makings of a book here. And then then all these different ideas kept coming. Oh, 90 and 90. That's a good idea. Let's do that. How do I break that down? And uh, I had uh, my book has 180 quotes in it by the by the famous, infamous, and anonymous is how I, I describe it. I had all these resources all ready to go, but it just suddenly dawned on me, I have a book here. And, and, and that's how it went for me. And helping someone else is, is really difficult. You can make a hundred suggestions to people and you're, you're never quite sure what will work for them but you, you get to, to know them better. One other thing I want to talk about that I think you'll find uh, very interesting is uh, uh, what we were talking about language. This was must be two years ago now. Uh, I ran across uh, a description of a Civil War soldier who had w- what today we call PTSD. And at that time, they it was commonly described as soldier's heart. He has soldier's heart. Then time went on. And that's very relating to the person. As time went on, by the time it was World War I, the same people were described as having shell shock. So now they're described by something outside themselves. And today, the same thing is called PTSD, uh, which is a way to uh, clinically separate the person from their disorder and they become a PTSD. That shows to me how we need to keep in touch with the person that we're trying to help and, and not apply different adjectives and adverbs and nouns to them to relate to the person as they are, not to think of them as a, some, a substance use abuser. Or there, there you go, there's another difference of language, a substance use disorder there versus an abuser. Just like I said at the very beginning of our talk here with the drug court and recovery court, the difference between a user and abuser is huge. And the culture we live in, we alcoholics kind of get a break because it's culturally 
more acceptable than the illegal substances. Our brain, you know that. Our brain doesn't know the difference of whether we're taking a legal drug or an illegal drug. But the, the but the society that looks at our behavior judges us differently depending on the legality or illegality of the substance uh, we're using. There really is so it really is endless. The, the whole recovery uh, movement is just such a, a wonderful thing. It, we're, we're at a different point now than than when uh, AA was found in, was it 1939? Uh, we live in a, a different world now. And uh, mentioning stigma, I was really hit with like a whammy because uh, here I am, I'm an alcoholic. I used to s smoke. Uh, there's that stigma. Uh, I had cancer. There, when I found out I had cancer, there was, you're not going to believe this. Uh, someone that lives down the street from me was afraid to get near me because she said that she heard that cancer runs in families. Therefore, it must be contagious. Now, there's a certain very faulty logic to that, you know, but it, it shows you hidden behind that is the, the, the stigma of of cancer, the stigma of recovery, stigma of addiction. I I have stigmas uh, up the wazoo, <laughs> you know, I really do. And, and I just, the last day or two read that, that people uh, have a six times higher suicide rate that have multiple stigmas against them. And I believe it's true. And, and this whole COVID, back to COVID, uh, this COVID thing is bringing this out. But fentanyl, you know, that, that that's made things uh, worse for uh, worse for heroin users. But, but uh, we we have only seen probably the tip of the iceberg of suicides and and deaths. Oh, uh, one line in my book: my younger sister committed suicide. Uh, one line in my book is sometimes suicide isn't suicide at all. It is addiction having the last word. Mm, I've because never heard I, that. That's interesting. Yeah, yes, because and I, I believe that's really true because I believe my sister would not have committed suicide had she not been addicted to prescription drugs. She, she was, uh, this was many years ago when there were pill mills all over the place and she had multiple doctors and that whole scene that's really, I guess, not as common today with the the internet is slightly better for, for people now, but suicide is uh, something that's going to be more in the news as, as time goes on with this COVID thing. But I agree with you. I think it is. And in fact, I just had a doctor on in the last couple of weeks, a uh, suicide prevention doctor. Like he, Oh, did you? I, yeah, is it, is it online? I can watch that one. Uh, it will be soon. Oh, okay. I think it's still in editing, but um, but he was really great. Dan Reidenberg was mm -hmm. his name. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem for sure. And definitely COVID is going to compound it because people feel hopeless and helpless. But it's the same with, you know, when, when there's an addiction involved, mm -hmm. we feel helpless and hopeless. And we can even get into that helpless and hopeless state while we're not drinking without the drugs yeah. and alcohol, oh, yeah, it yeah. could be harder. And that's why a lot of people fail in sobriety because they fail to grow afterwards. If you fail to grow your emotional and spiritual well-being, then you have a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness, which comes over pretty much everybody in the world. But yeah. for some people, it's a fleeting thought. 
And for some people, it weighs you down and eventually leads to things like suicide. So yeah, I, I, I feel really lucky with this COVID thing because, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be 70 this month and I have 16 years of sobriety. I don't know if I could have gotten sober the way things are now. But curiously, uh, I have a, a friend who's uh, Spanish speaking and everything that I post every day, I translate it into Spanish for him and it's a big help for him. He decided to quit drinking more or less because of COVID-19, thinking this is the perfect time to quit. And it didn't occur to me that, yeah, he's probably right. There's no bars open, you know? <laughs> just, they didn't close the liquor stores though, did they? Here's, a, here's just like kind of a fun question. So if you can go back to like your 16 year old self and talk to that young guy, oh, what would you say? What, what would you tell that guy? I, I would say education, educate yourself about what you're putting into your body. I, I started smoking before labels were on the side of the, the packs of cigarettes. And when President Reagan, when he was still an actor, was advertising cigarettes on television. And, and liquor, liquor commercials were on uh, TV and every really over, over at the, the year I was born, 1950, I believe it's 51% of American males smoke cigarettes. So it was the norm. And we, we are uh, a species that groups, you know, we, we, we thrive in in uh, interconnection between people. And, and that is one thing, you know, happy hour is supposed to be uh, joining together of friends and the device, the substance is alcohol. And for, if you're an alcoholic, that connection with other people, the same substance is what divided me from others. Eventually it was me and the bottle and no, you can't have any, you know, it was, there was no sharing of, of, the, of the substance or of the substance of me with anyone. It was me and my bottle. I, I really, like I said, in the, like it says in the title, I became a, really an animal. I, the, the human connection uh, was dissolved in, in, in a sea of alcohol for real. Yeah, it sure. Was. Yes. Yeah, so um, awesome stuff. Thank you so much. So if people want to get in touch with you, how do they get in touch with Jim Anders? All drinking aside, is the title of the book. It's available on Amazon. It's, uh, has, it's available in a couple of places in New Jersey. You can go to uh, alldrinkingaside.com to go to my blog. Uh, you can go to uh, on Twitter, uh, Jim Anders 4, the number four. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn and, you know, the different social media. So, so that way. So can you there see it? Is. There it is. Awesome <laughs> Write stuff. it down. Get your pen and paper out, everybody. I'll drink it aside. Well, thanks so much for stopping in the Funky Brain Podcast today. I appreciate it. You're a great man. And I appreciate the conversation. Thanks again, everybody. Have a great day today. And we'll talk to you soon. So you can't think your way into a new way of acting. You have to act your way into a new way of thinking and being. Hi, I'm Dennis Berry, best-selling author, speaker, and life coach for addiction recovery. So many people are stuck in their addiction, whether it's like drugs or alcohol or food or shopping or sex or money, and they think they can just stop or try to figure it out on their own, but they don't change anything in their lives. Nothing changes if nothing changes. 
In order for change to happen, you have to change something. My clients will be like, oh, I'll stop tomorrow, or if this happens, then I stop, or someday I'll just give it up. And then they just sit around and think, 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 and hope for different or better results, but it doesn't happen. You have to take action. Action most people aren't willing to take. People don't become willing until they're in enough pain, me included. And unfortunately, they wait, and they wait and time passes by. Even if you are willing, you don't even know where to begin. And that's where I come in. In my best-selling book, Funky Wisdom, A Practical Guide to Life, I talk about the how approach. How do I get sober? How do I stop doing drugs? How do I become healthier? How do I have more successful relationships? How do I become more financially successful? And the answer is how. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. I have to honestly admit that there's a problem. I have to honestly admit that things aren't going well and there needs to be changes. And then once I do that, the door opens and I become open to seeing new ways of living. And then I become willing to make those changes. You can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. That's why I'm here to help. And you know, I've been working with clients for over 15 years and helping them get clean and sober and change their lives and achieve inner peace and success. If you or somebody you love is struggling and doesn't know where to begin and how to make those changes to get to where they need to be, give me a call. Not tomorrow or in a week from now when you are hungover and your life is falling apart. Call now. Start making that change today and you'll be glad that you did. I'm sending you love and good vibes. Have a great day today.